Our scripture reading for this evening comes from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll be reading from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11 to chapter 6 verse 2. As we approach God's word, let's come before him in prayer. O Lord, our God and our King, as we come before you now in your holy temple, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and that through it we may be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we may be transformed evermore into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men and women, I suppose. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, our reading this evening from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians is, I think, one of the most profound and beautiful passages in Scripture. In it is contained the very essence of the gospel, where in verse 21, Paul reminds us of the core of the story that God invites us to live into, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the center and the focus of the whole story of the Bible, that in this sacrifice, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And Paul adds to this beautiful summary of the message of the gospel, 
that the ministry of reconciliation has been entrusted to us, to the church, who live as ambassadors of Christ, living no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised again. This passage is really incredible, and it's even more beautiful when we consider the context in which Paul is writing it. You see, Paul had a troubled relationship with the Corinthian church from the beginning, even though he was with them for a long time. Paul spends a year and a half in Corinth getting the church off the ground. He teaches them from scripture. He trains up leaders so that they'll have someone to continue his ministry after he moves on. For Paul to stay in the same place for a year and a half, that's, that's a pretty big deal for him. He moves around a lot. But the city of Corinth at the time was sort of a cultural center. It was a place of ideas. It had a lot of schools. Corinth has a lot of homegrown philosophers, many of whose works have lived on even to our present day. We can still even now read the works of a lot of these philosophers and teachers from Corinth. And the people of Corinth were very proud of their city's reputation as a center of learning, a center of culture, a place where people were open-minded and well-read and enlightened. And so the way that this worked was that In Corinth, you had these different schools. You had the Stoics and the Cynics and the Epicureans and the Platonists. And and these different schools, different teachers would come and teach at these schools. And people would come to become disciples of these different teachers. They would come to learn under a particular teacher. And it was sort of a point of pride if you could go walking through the city streets and see someone from a different school and get into an argument with them publicly in the street and beat them in an argument to say, oh, look, my teacher taught me better than you, so my teacher has a better perspective on life than your teacher does. And this is something that in the Corinthian church continues to be a problem, even in the church. This is what we see in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, where Paul's talking about divisions in the church, where some people are saying, I follow Paul, and others are saying, I follow Cephas, and others are saying, I follow Apollos. And Paul just kind of goes, oh, you guys, you don't get it. Paul says there and here that these earthly teachers mean nothing. What matters is Christ and Christ's work of reconciliation. In fact, even in saying that they follow these earthly teachers, these earthly leaders, Paul says that the Corinthians are binding themselves to an old way of thinking. They're thinking in the ways of the world and following the ways of the world, but there is a new reality in Christ. They shouldn't follow the worldly pattern of binding themselves to a particular teacher. They should serve Christ. Christ brings in a new reality. He changes the worldly patterns of thinking. And so Paul goes on time and time again throughout both of the letters to the Corinthians. He goes on time and time again to talk about the work of Christ. And the way that he does this, I really like Because he doesn't so much set forth a particular set of doctrines or a particular set of beliefs or a set of propositions that people need to affirm. What Paul does is he brings them in to a story. He tells them the big story, the true story of God and the whole world. How the holy God created the heavens and the earth to enjoy his company. But the crown of his creation, humanity, rebelled against him and fell into sin and so became evil. 
And God, because he's holy, he can't stand the presence of things that are tainted by evil. When sinful beings, when evil things come into God's presence, they are destroyed because of his holiness. And so God couldn't live with his creation anymore because his creation had become unholy because his creation was not righteous. But God was not satisfied to leave things in this situation. He was not satisfied to condemn his creation. He was so intent on reconciling his creation to himself that he sent his own son to accomplish this ministry of reconciliation. And so the Son of God became human in Jesus and began the work of reconciliation, healing the sick and feeding the hungry to demonstrate that the kingdom of God had come. Jesus lived a life without sin, lived a life of holiness and devotion and dedication to God. And because he was fully God and fully human, he was able to take the punishment of our rebellion and our sin on himself. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sins and gave us his own righteousness so that we could once again live in the presence of God. And God raises Jesus from the dead to demonstrate his power over sin and death and to show everybody that the kingdom of God was real and powerful and here. But then, Jesus leaves. We once knew Christ in the flesh, but now we know him no longer, Paul says. And this seems to be a bit of a problem. Because it's pretty clear that the work of reconciliation is not finished. There is still sin. There is still wickedness. There is still injustice. There is still death. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is here. But when we look around, when the early Christians looked around, when the Christians in Corinth looked around, The old kingdoms of the world were all still in place. The powers that controlled the world before Jesus was was raised from the dead continue to control the world after he ascends into heaven. So there's a problem. Because the work of reconciliation doesn't seem to be finished. It doesn't seem to be done. The work that God began in Christ seems to be incomplete. Did God forget to finish the job? Did God get bored? With the work of reconciliation? Did Jesus find the work of reconciliation to be too hard? And so he left? Paul answers this question with an emphatic no. In verses 18 and 19, he says twice that God has given us this ministry of reconciliation. God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. In verse 20, he says that we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. In chapter 6, verse 1, he calls us co-workers with God. God's co-workers, God's fellow workers. And I want to emphasize this because it is as shocking as it sounds. Paul says that God, who began this work of reconciliation in Christ, has now committed that work of reconciliation to us. Verse 20 literally says in the Greek, it literally says, and now we rule in place of Christ. The word there is the verb form of presbyter or elder or ruler. We rule in place of Christ. How is this possible? How how can we rule in the place of Christ? How can we carry out God's work? It sounds so unreformed. It sounds so works righteousness. It sounds so triumphalistic. Like we have to finish God's work for him because he can't finish it without us or something. 
How can Paul possibly say that we rule in place of Christ? How can Paul say that we are the ones who continue God's work of reconciliation? How can Paul say that we are the ones who continue the work that God began in Christ? It's too much responsibility. It's too much. We can't do God's work for him. He's God. And we're just human. We can't. We're unable. We're unworthy. We're weak. We're fallen. We're incompetent most of the time. We can't do it. But we can, Paul says. We can not because we're powerful, not because we're worthy, not because we're able, not because we're strong, not because we're holy, not because we're righteous. We can because the new creation has already begun. There's this theme all the way through, Paul, really all the way through the New Testament, that in Christ, the end of time, the new creation, the kingdom of God has broken in to this present reality. Eternity has broken into history in the form of the God who became human. The word become flesh, the son of God become the son of man. The Old Testament talks a lot about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of the resurrection, the day of salvation. These are all the same thing in the Old Testament. The Jews believed that there would come a day when God would return to earth to judge the nations and everyone would give an account and then God would take his throne and rule over Israel and from Israel would rule over all the earth. A lot of time in the Old Testament, this is just referred to as the day. The day of the Lord was so important in Jewish religion that it became sort of the central focus of the prophets. On the day, God would judge the nations. On the day, God would restore his people. On the day, God would establish his kingdom to the ends of the earth. On the day, God would wipe away every tear and right every wrong and heal every disease and establish his throne in Zion. But in the New Testament, the day takes on new meaning. In Matthew 12, Jesus tells the Pharisees that the kingdom of God, which was associated with the day, the kingdom of God has come. In Mark 1, Jesus begins his teaching with the time has come. In Luke 4, Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, which is a passage about the day of the Lord. Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue and then proclaims, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In Acts 2, Peter gives a sermon after the Holy Spirit comes to the disciples at Pentecost and he quotes the prophet Joel. On the last day, says the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Jesus and the apostles proclaim the day is now. The day is here. The kingdom is come. And in 2 Corinthians, this is the great truth that Paul has been building towards since the beginning of the letter. All the way through, he has these contrasting metaphors of external decay and internal renewal. In chapter 2, he compares the aroma of death under the law to the aroma of life in Christ. In chapter 3, he contrasts the tablets of stone under the law to the flesh of the human heart, which is the seat of the new covenant. He compares the veil over Moses' face when he came down from Mount Sinai to the glory that shone out from his countenance. He compares the ministry of condemnation under the old covenant to the ministry of righteousness under the new covenant in Christ. 
In chapter 4, he compares the darkness of sin to the light of Christ, the clay vessels of human flesh to the treasure of the Spirit within our hearts, the death that comes from the law to the life that comes from Christ, the wasting away of all creation to the glory of God revealed in those whom Christ has redeemed. And this continues in chapter 5, where Paul compares the earthly tent of the body to the eternal house of God's kingdom. Paul is out of his mind for God. He's ecstatic for God, but he's in his right mind for the Corinthians. The old has gone. The new has come. Christ has become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The new creation has broken in to the old creation. The day of the Lord has broken in to this present day. This is what Paul is saying in verse 17, which we so often personalize and individualize. The Greek is kind of difficult, and so a lot of translations supply the missing words by adding he is, or they are, or there is. But the Greek literally says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has begun. If anyone is in Christ, the resurrection has begun. If anyone is in Christ, the eschatological kingdom of God has broken in to this present reality. If anyone is in Christ, God reigns over all the earth. And then here in chapter 6, Paul quotes Isaiah 49. In the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation... I helped you. And then he goes on to proclaim, look, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is why Paul can say that the ministry of reconciliation has been given to the church, has been given to us. Because in the resurrection of Christ, the coming day of the Lord has broken in to our present reality. The day of salvation, the day of judgment, the day of the kingdom, the day of resurrection, the day has come in the person of Jesus and continues to invade this present reality through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is why Jesus tells the apostles in Luke 17, 21 concerning the kingdom, no one will be able to say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Through the work of Christ who became sin for us, we are made the righteousness of God. We are able to live in God's presence and God's Holy Spirit lives within us, lives out of us. We do not live for ourselves anymore. We live for Jesus. We do not live by our own power anymore. We live by the Spirit And so the work that we do on Christ's behalf is not our own work. The ruling that we do in Christ's place is not our own ruling. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God doesn't give us the ministry of reconciliation because he needs us to help him. God gives us the ministry of reconciliation because he has helped us. God gives us the ministry of reconciliation because he fills us with his spirit and works through us by his grace. This is one of the powerful works of God in the New Testament and in our present day that God works through normal people because his spirit lives inside of them. 
I went off script and got lost. This is why the contemporary testimony says that we are sent with the gospel of the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is in, with, among us through the Spirit. So Paul can talk about the mission of God's people because the Spirit of God lives in his people. The Spirit of God fills us with love and grace and mercy and justice so that we can be the hands and feet of God in this world. God makes us to be the new creation in this old creation. God makes us to be the kingdom of God in the kingdom of darkness. God makes us to be the voice crying out in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of God is here. God entrusts this mission to us through his spirit and he will carry it to completion through his spirit. And so Paul urges the Corinthians, be reconciled to God. Because when we are reconciled to God, God works through us in mighty ways. When we are reconciled to God, we can begin to reconcile with one another. When we are reconciled to God, we can begin to reconcile with all of creation. And God can work through us in mighty ways to bring all people to himself and to bring glory to his name. May he be praised forever and ever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. O Lord, our God and our King, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that in Christ you forgive our sins so that you can live with us and through us. We thank you for the power that works mightily in us to bring this ministry of reconciliation to the ends of the earth. And Lord, we pray that you would give us strength, grace, peace through your Holy Spirit so that we may be faithful ministers of your reconciliation. We pray this in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.